0: welcome to the Danielle Noonan podcast where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is Chris Sheldrick, co-founder and CEO of What Free Words, the startup which is quite literally mapping the world. Chris grew up as a gifted musician who thought his music career was all mapped out, but sadly, Chris suffers from a sleep disorder which saw him sever the very parts of his body required for such an illustrious career. Not deterred by his life-changing experience, Chris started a company that would later lead to founding What Three Words with some of his best and brightest friends to forge a completely new standard in a field as old as time. Chris's story is one of courage, determination naive optimism and grit all the golden traits of all great entrepreneurs and in this conversation chris talks me through how he did it how what three words is dividing the entire world into 57 trillion three by three meter squares using a unique combination of three words to ensure there isn't a place on earth where someone cannot get what they need whether it is a bank account an emergency service or a way to their destination quite the feat for a classically trained bassoonist. This is the startup of startup stories with so many great lessons on how to get your startup from just an idea to a business, how to find your first investors and commercial partners, why PR is important for businesses like this and what a tech entrepreneur learned from being a musician. I thoroughly enjoyed what was rather a unique conversation with Chris today and I'm sure you will enjoy it too. So here is my conversation with Chris Sheldrick. Chris thank you so much for joining me today with all my interviews I always start at the very beginning so I wanted to ask you what were you like growing up and what were some childhood experiences that shaped you?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. So growing up, I was very focused on music and specifically classical music. So that would have dominated most of my youth. And I was learning the piano, the clarinet bassoon. And I guess I had a lot of discipline and a lot of dedication that it takes at quite a young age, if you're just religiously practicing something like that. And in some ways, You know, you think, well, do I take all of these things with me if I'm not if I'm not playing these instruments? But I guess what I learned over time is that all of the mindset on how to to grow one of those skills is something which is really valuable. And also, I was a techie when I was a teenager growing up. I was into code and playing around with things like that. And again, whilst I can't code now, I look back on those times and think I'm really pleased that I know how my brain can relate to anybody who is writing code and the kind of stuff that that takes with me so I was yeah probably those two things dominated me and an obsessive but in quite in quite different areas
0: absolutely I was going to ask you about your music because I know that you were very gifted what got you into music what led to you and also doing bassoon obviously it's not the most common of instruments what got you on that path in the first place
1: Um, So you're absolutely right. The bassoon is probably considered a niche instrument. But actually, my dad was saying, well, look, you know, if you want to get into orchestras, um, he said, he would sort of asked around and said, well, you know, there's never enough bassoonists. <laughs> so if you if you learn the bassoon, you've got a better chance. I don't know, maybe he just <laughs> didn't uh, buy into my ability to get in uh, just on my own merits. But either way, he was also right in that they never do have enough bassoonists. And so I was always able to maybe to get away with things I wouldn't have done otherwise. And I think it was just some some people's parents, not that they were amazing musicians, but there was just always a piano around. And it was something I kind of took to And enjoyed. And so my parents just gave me a push, and and I'm pleased they did.
0: Fantastic. And like you said there about not only being really into music and and being gifted, the discipline that's required, I'm sure, like you said, has served you well as an entrepreneur. What would you say, when you were that age, when you were into music growing up, and I, I know that your father unfortunately had motor neuron disease, what impacted you and what did you think you were going to do when you were older? Was there any pivotal moments when you were younger? where you thought I might do this on a model, which obviously, I'm sure there's no way in hell that you were thinking I'm going to be starting a company that's going to map the world. But was there anything that changed you as a child that made you think I'm going to go on this path?
1: So I think probably the biggest conflict I had as a child was actually the fact that I was good or interested in these two very different things, one of which was classical music, and one was computers and tech. And I think, in in some ways it would have just been easier had I had one and just dedicated a lot of my life to it and I decided to go into music and partly because I think I was thinking you know what what am I really good at and I was probably better at music than I was at tech and therefore I was thinking about university and all of these kind of things which which may not have been the right way to think about it but I thought probably that was going to be my most likely path and again this would have been early 2000s before the kind of music business kind of evaporated or or changed dramatically as it was then um and had a lot more opportunity um th- than it does in the current way from from a business side certainly. so I think that that's what I was set on doing but then if I think about what I'm doing now and stuff I did when I was growing up you know when I was doing code and logic I was obsessed with those things and actually well, what what through words has become is almost a bit like a kind of enigmatic code with the kind of thing that I could have happily invented with my friend Mohan, who I did set What Three Words up, but when we were kind of, I don't know, 14 years old and playing around with stuff. So I don't know, I kind of think that, yeah, all of the things I was doing in those formative years, funnily enough, come back and feel like good ideas when you're older.
0: Absolutely. And they always do. And that's why I always go back to people's childhoods because I think what a lot for a lot of founders especially what happens in your younger years or uh, what forms you and and leads you on the path to entrepreneurship. Talking about Mohan there, I was reading up about your co-founders and I was absolutely amazed by the brilliance which I'm sure you know full well about but can you tell me about Mohan so you did you meet him at school is that right?
1: That's right we'd been at school together since we were probably seven eight years old or something he was phenomenally good at maths and code and everything in between and I think even potentially why I decided to go down music instead of tech is I thought wow you know if this is what it takes to be a coder um, maybe I'm not as good at this. What I didn't know necessarily at the time was that Mohan was, was probably in like the very, very top few. I mean, he's won all sorts of math prizes. And I think there's, there's one prize he's won, which suggests that he's sort of within the top one or two brains in the country or something. So um, maybe I was giving myself a bit of an unfair comparison mm-hmm. when I was thinking I'm not that good at, at, de- at writing software development. Um, but but he is very unique in that respect. and. And it was just, you know, great, even though we'd gone in quite two different career paths. He went down academia, and was doing maths, and I went down the music path. We would meet once every year or two just to catch up. Um, And just luckily, that was how the idea for What Three Words was born during one of those catch-ups.
0: I wanted to talk about the idea because when I've heard you talk about it before, I think you guys were just literally doing it as an intellectual challenge. You're just kind of sitting around and having this idea. Can you tell me more about it, how it came to be?
1: But that's exactly it. So we we were having a, an annual catch up and I was just saying to him, um, having had some frustrations with trying to get my musicians to use GPS coordinates, and we had this particularly kind of difficult day in Italy where a truck driver had mixed up two digits of a latitude because I'd, I'd given him latitude and longitude because the address just pointed to nowhere near the right place. Um, and I said to Mohan, God, you know, it's amazing. This guy showed up an hour north of Rome instead of an hour south of Rome. Um, amazing that GPS coordinates exist, but these really aren't very user-friendly and there must be a reason that not many people use them. I was kind of the person in the London music business banging the drum for GPS coordinates and everyone else was saying, Chris, these are kind of complicated and I don't want to use it. So it was just then me saying, how can we distill eight digits of latitude and eight digits of longitude in something which just feels very simple for anybody? Um, and if you're going to make it really consumer-friendly, it has to be really, really simple. And Mohan came up with the idea of dictionary words because we thought about making an alphanumeric code, but then that ends up as like a very long postcode if you try and make this global. And just felt too hard. But luckily, his brain is such that he he basically thought, well, actually, we could do dictionary words. You'd only need about three words, table, chair, spoon, or something like that to fill every three meters in the world. Um, and to his credit, he did all of this without calculator. Um, whereas I was kind of like furiously trying to keep up. Um, but I just thought it was such an elegant idea. Even though he was looking at it more like an international challenge, I thought, well, actually, that is a really good idea. And and we should do something about it.
0: It's an amazing story. We should also explain because obviously, you, the path that you were set for was being a musician. And then can you explain the situation of, of why you ended up working in the music industry, but not as a musician?
1: Yeah, so I mean it was really unfortunate timing. I'm not not there's ever fortunate timing, but just after I'd um graduated in, in classical music, I have a sleepwalking disorder where I actually sleepwalk about twice a night every night. Um and it's just been with me ever since I was young and it still happens now. But I'd never injured myself until this month after graduating, where I actually punched through a window totally asleep. Um and didn't didn't wake up until I'd I was at my friend's parents house and I'd sort of got downstairs into the middle of the road then I woke up in the street um, having cut you know, the, the ulnar nerve eight tendons in my artery and so did a huge amount of damage fortunately a, a next door neighbor sort of heard the crash thought it was a burglary came out to tackle me but then ended up rescuing me so a, a really bizarre um, sort of sequence of events but unfortunately if you cut your ulnar nerve you lose sensation in, in one and a half of your fingers which if you want to be a professional musician, um, doesn't really work. So they were just very upfront with me in the hospital and said, we know you've dedicated a lot of your life to this, Uh, or at that time, pretty much all of my life, but you are going to have to do something different. So having just graduated, I was obviously a bit shocked to receive that news, but decided, I guess, quite pragmatically, at least there was certainty in, in it. And they were saying, this is not going to improve. And so thought well I know about music and I know a lot of musicians so I could just set up a music business and I had been doing a bit of part-time work in an agency so I kind of knew how I worked and I just thought well I'll start my own Um, and that was yeah age 22 and I just went out there and did my own business.
0: That's such an incredible I don't know uh, most people at 23 when they dedicated their life to something and they get that news that would have really Turn people into a kind of slump, but for you, you just went out and you had a successful business with this music company. So it's an incredible insight into your personality and drive. um Sleepwalking, tell me about. Do you know the science of it? Because I started to do a whole lot of research for this interview, and I couldn't make sense of it they said it was sometimes hereditary have you got anyone in your family that used to sleepwalk
1: so not really in my case actually and i think um my one's called something a parasomnia there there's all sorts yeah. of words for the but the more i have looked into it over the years and obviously tried loads of things to to cure it the more i've learned how little is known about mm-hmm. sleep i mean it's you know relatively little is known about the brain versus the other parts of the body um but anything to do with the sleep um Disorders. And I actually went back to one of the doctors recently and I thought, God, it's been 10 years. Surely there's been some advancement. Yes. And they just said to me, absolutely none. Uh also even in a decade. So um, it is something which is just very, very little known about it. It's very predictable in my case. And people can show me a lot of graphs as to what's happening in my brain. But um, it's just one of those things that's a bit of an unsolved mystery for, for some people, of which I'm one.
0: Wow. Okay. Now, so we've got to the stage of you've had this idea with Mohan. What happened next? How did it become a company?
1: Um, so um, I'm relatively impulsive, which is probably good in this situation, because I remember going or driving home that evening and just going, we really should start a company straight away, but not in the kind of way that I knew how it would be monetized or sort of how a business would be grown, but just the idea felt to me compelling enough that that it should be done. Um, and I also think I, I was very clear from that even first night, ha- having sort of bootstrapped my music business myself, taking a lot of time over it. This time around, I really wanted to do it with other people. And so I immediately um, just dropped a note to another old friend uh, who is Jack, Jack Willy Cohen. Um, and him, him and Mohan didn't know each other. I knew them sort of separately. And I'd actually pay, played on my old school chess team with Jack. Um, and he's also sort of a former countdown winner, loved quizzes um, and even like a quiz show writer and things. So, so I just knew that he would love the idea. And, and he I knew he'd once built an app. And I just thought he'll, he'll be someone great to do this project with. So very impulsively dropped him a note, met up with him and, and Jack was on board. Luckily, he'd also run a translation company for the last 10 years. And if we were going to do a system based on words, and of course, not just English words, we're going to do it internationally. Um, that was also a total gem that he just knew about that whole world of how on earth we'd approach putting together an enormous word list um, in so many languages. So then the three of us set about it. Mohan wrote the algorithm, and then Jack and I effectively sort of got the business up and up and running. Uh, got our IP all registered, uh, and then sort of thought, right, what once once we launched a very very basic app and website. Where do we go from here and and actually build the business?
0: It's so fantastic. And like I said, I was looking into your co-founders and they're all so brilliant. Like you couldn't have picked a better team. And the fact that you had that history and knew each other, that's, you know, you couldn't ask for anything more. Um, I want to talk about postcodes. So another thing I was doing, I was looking at the origin of postcodes, which I'm sure you know about. I assume very early on you were looking into this and I wanted to know roughly how many people in the world don't have a postcode or an address. And what the impact is for them if they don't.
1: So it's a really interesting area. And when I kind of looked more closely at this, I was stunned. The UN has a figure of 4 billion people in the world who who live without an address, which is obviously so many and so many more than I was aware of. I think in my music business days, I had traveled a lot of the world. We were doing a lot of international events um, and so many places we showed up and you asked for the address or postcode and were met with a kind of shrug Um, and that is just the case in a lot of countries. It's, it's, it's very time intensive, cost intensive to put something together like the UK's address and postcode system, which also isn't perfect. The village I live in, no one can find my house. Um, so it, it's far from perfect, but but in many countries in, in the world, it doesn't exist at all. So that was very obvious to me, just based on the, the time I'd spent traveling in music. And so I think we knew that it was a big opportunity. And even you know, in the UK, which is supposedly the best addressed country in the world with with the best postcode system, um, you know, what's now been proved to be the case, it is the biggest market for What3Words also. So there is there is clearly sufficient use cases for a really accurate system.
0: Absolutely. But it's also, I think, I'm guessing you've learned this very quickly, but there are so many places in the world where there are mothers dying because they can't get to hospital while they're trying to give birth and various other things, which a lot of people wouldn't even consider because we have our addresses and we can set up a bank account and obviously many can't. But there are so many places, like you said, I mean, 4 billion is an unbelievable number. If someone doesn't have an address and they're not able to give that out, what does it mean for them? And in terms of what you're doing now, what's the impact of not having an address?
1: You're absolutely right in, in some of the things you've just said and all the things we take for granted. So all the forms we fill out as part of a daily life, you know, when you move house um, to get your utilities connected, to get your bank account sorted, all of those things become impossible if you don't have an address which is recognised by the state. And so that is when a lot of people are living effectively effectively off the grid, off the official grid. Uh, if you can't get a bank account, can't get utilities, can't be recognized by your local government, you are effectively in- invisible to them. And, and this is something which unfortunately is just the case for so many countries around the world. Incredibly frustrating. There are health consequences. Um, it, there's there's one NGO we work with in South Africa, Gateway Health, who use what three word's, In a way to to get ambulances just to take people to hospital when they're giving birth, which you think, well, you know, this is a straightforward thing they must have a government system for, but it's it's not working, whatever's happening. And the lack of address is a massive part of that. So it really is very impactful for something that so many of us take for granted if you don't have it.
0: Absolutely. Um I want to talk to you about the original mission because talking like we just did then about in countries where ambulances aren't able to find addresses and things like that when you started out I presume this wasn't even at the forefront. So what when you started out was the mission?
1: I think when we started out the mission was to make a global system in a world where latitude and longitude was really the only alternative to addresses and all of their problems. And I think it was to achieve both. So it was to make The developed countries where addresses were generally around much more efficient and it was to give something to the countries without anything so that people could just use it today. And so that's a big part of it being pre-assigned. All the three words being pre-assigned is that there is no kind of waiting for the government to come around with a pen and clipboard and decide that this is street name X and street number Y. Um, it was just to be global. And and as much as that might sound a hugely audacious goal to just generate something for the world, that was what we intended. And I think like everyone who starts a startup, you you think it might be easier, but we were just very set on this is achievable because for whatever reason, we got this far in time and nobody had decided to make a global system. And I just thought, well, if you're that person on that day with that idea, great. And let's run with it.
0: Fantastic. Talking about coming up with the idea with your co-founders and getting started on it, the early days obviously weren't particularly easy as they are for most startups. Um, I read somewhere that you were literally typing in, I think, 40,000 words from the dictionary into a spreadsheet to work out how it's going to go. Can you tell me about the early days? What were they like? Because obviously, I'm guessing it must have taken quite a bit of time before you started actually generating some money.
1: That's right. And so to put the system together, yes, we did need to work out and formulate this list of words. And so, um, yeah, I copied and pasted. We kind of got a dictionary that we were able to use for this purpose. But that's a starting point. And then you need to take out all sorts of words, um, hyphenated words, words that have different spellings, US, UK, and then, once you're sort of left with what you think is a decent list, you've got to go through it all and decide well, look, you know, the world's a big place. It would be great if the word, if words like table appeared in London, where there's English speaking users who are going to use it. Um, and words like dodecahedron would probably be better placed in the Antarctic, um, where it's less likely to be used. So, you, we kind of had to go through and rank all of the words. And it takes a staggeringly long time. I think I sort of I pasted them all into this Excel document. I thought, well, I'll just go row by row, give each word a score. And it turns out once you've done that for about 15 words, it gets quite tiring and boring uh, for whatever of a better word. Um, and so it took me about six months. And as I sort of got through the process, I got help from a few people who who also looked at some of the words because I could only do, I don't know, a couple of hundred words and then I was just, I couldn't do (laughs) any more. And it takes a while to get through all, I think we started with about 65,000 and then we ended up with 40,000. But it's a grueling process. And especially then, you know, you you don't quite know what's going to happen to all of this. You don't know how it's going to be received when you launch. And such a monotonous task on, on some days really did get to me. And even my sort of early friends who I'd kind of persuaded to invest in the company, they were still sort of looking at me a bit like, you know, poor Chris, he's sitting there with a spreadsheet row by row. He's really into this idea. Um, uh, But I was, and I kind of just had the persistence over those first few months. And whilst Mohan was kind of finessing the algorithm and Jack was kind of getting just the app functional, uh, yeah, it was just kind of getting the basic V1 product up, which was English only and getting the three words populated across the world. But it was a bit of a slog back then.
0: And when you did get it up, what was the reaction? Because when I spoke to Matthew Stafford, who was on that actually introduced us, he was going on about how very early on, I think it's even now as well, it's quite polarizing. So some people love the idea and some people hate it. What was the reaction when you had version one ready? And how long did it take before you were like getting commercial partners?
1: So version one took six months from the idea conception to getting version one out. It was very polarizing. People would love it or hate it, or maybe be love or love it or be confused by it or something like that. Um, but there were very few people who, who sat on the fence. The good thing is, and I do think it's a good thing, having a polarizing idea because it means that those who love it will invest, they will evangelize, which is what you need. And we had a really good reaction in the press when we launched it. People thought it was a intriguing idea and, and intriguing ideas get good coverage. So that was really strong validation. The only thing we didn't have back then is, is what to say really to people who either didn't like it or were confused by it. Nowadays, you can say, but it's used in Mercedes cars and by DHL and and you've got this huge list of global partners and you'll kind of win people round by external validation, if you like. Back then, if people didn't like it, we couldn't really do anything apart from say, well, you know, we believe it's a good idea and let's catch up you know, and see where we get to. So you just have to press on regardless. In terms of commercial traction, it was definitely about three years before we started getting third-party apps to seriously integrate the idea um, and to integrate our API, which is how we make money into their apps. And then the sort of landmark deals with Mongolian Postal Service 2016, Mercedes 2017. But what we spent time on before that, because the idea was so distinctive and the idea got so much attention, 2015, which was our, I think, third year in operation, we almost went around the world applying for every innovation award that there basically was. And we won probably the biggest one in the world, the Cannes Lions Grand Prix for innovation. And we were so stunned by the huge reaction we had from that. It was clear that we'd happened on an idea which just struck a chord with a lot of people in that world. And so it was our way of generating PR. It was our way of getting people into the What Through Words app, trying it out, and getting those evangelists. And like many other VC-backed companies, you can defer making revenue if you can get people on board through other means that we did. So it was a really good strategy. In retrospect, a lot of that was hinged on our CMO, Giles, who kind of came from that creative world and knew that we could get exposure through that. And so I definitely credit that to him. But then monetization, all the third party integrations happened through those great proof points with the Mongolian Postal Service and Mercedes.
0: When you set up the company, I'm guessing the Mongolian Postal Service was not the first client you thought you'd get. How did that happen? I mean. Did you had you visit I assume you'd been over there? I mean what why uh, yeah
1: you're, it you're absolutely right. It wasn't on the business plan mm-hmm. and it was really by good fortune. It's kind of those, one of those creating your own luck things, and that part of going to all of those events and just talking about the idea meant that we traveled a lot internationally. And I was at an event in China where I met a a Mongolian guy. who who was just a very sort of extroverted entrepreneur there who loved the idea, which I was really happy about, but he had no use case. And then he called me up three months later and says, Chris, I've just bought a third of the Mongolian postal service and and have realized in my first few meetings that addresses is a huge problem for us. And people are ordering stuff online from ASOS, you know, in the UK, getting it delivered to Mongolia and they were having all these package returns because, you know, the address issue that stuff couldn't get delivered. So he invited me to Mongolia, was very adamant that we had to build a Mongolian version, obviously because because mm. English is not widely spoken there. So Mongolian was an early What3Words language version. And then we did a launch there. The Mongolian Postal Service adopted the system. Even QI, the TV show, did a feature on it, tested it, sent a letter there with just the three words on the envelope and nothing else, and it arrived. And it was kind of Mm -hmm. this great proof that that it worked. But it was amazing for publicity. And I remember The Economist doing a piece going, wow, if you can just buy three pre-assigned words, change an entire way that a nation can handle addresses, and, you know, it's a vast, vast place, Mongolia, to do everything manually. And it, and if just by using this software, you can transform a way that a country does addresses, this is ultra powerful. And it generated so much off the back of that other countries and governments getting in touch and so on.
0: It's amazing. And in terms of PR, that's something I wanted to touch upon in the interview, because you guys have been absolutely brilliant at it from the start. And I've seen so many talks of yours and I know that you're a gifted storyteller. I wanted to ask, because sometimes startups are or you know early startup founders are advised, don't go on the circuit, have your heads down, get on with things. So what's your advice to other founders about starting with PR? And obviously your idea needed to be communicated because in terms of investors, your story needed to be out there. So tell me about how important you found PR and how early on you started doing it.
1: So we invested heavily into PR from day one. So on our launch day, there was a PR campaign. And I think it does depend on the type of business you are. So there'll be many people out there saying, look, just go and get some early customers first, stop worrying about publicity and all this kind of thing. I think it does depend. So if you are like us, where if you're gonna monetize by selling people access to your system, the first thing they will ask you is how many people use your system? Mm -hmm. And if the answer to that is zero, you will not be able to make any sales it is not like if you make some i don't know hr software or some b2b classic business model where just the product on its own has value then you can make a sale a bit like my music business i could sell someone a band and they needed a band and that was great and off off you went what through words is not like that so if you want to to ease your ability to make money by selling access to a system you have to get adoption for that system somehow And PR and any kind of awareness generating initiatives is what helps you do that. So I think for anyone in the same bucket as us, and there's actually not that many people building standards as businesses. It's very, very rare. I think that PR is one of your only mechanisms. And it probably means it's also an intriguing idea because you're trying to get the whole world to do something differently. Um, I think for us, it, it worked and would definitely do it again. But I think it depends on the type of startup you are.
0: Absolutely. In terms of new standard, you obviously have created a new standard, but there isn't anyone else anywhere near uh, as in terms of competitors. What does that feel like as a founder? Because if you're in a pool with others, you can kind of see the benchmarks and you can also see others that might have gone down a similar route and and the struggles they had. Being the first, doing something like this, which is monumental. how, How do you find it as a founder?
1: it's amazing to be doing something where, you know, relatively quickly, and it still feels relatively quickly, even though it's been years, we're getting known or have been known, or I can show up in countries around the world and people know what three words, because it's so unique and distinctive. And it's a phenomenal feeling to know that this idea has has managed to get that far. And whatever mechanism they've heard about us through is brilliant. Um, there's a flip side to that, which is that I think businesses with competitors, you you know where you stand, if you like, in the rankings. You can even just look on the App Store and go, where do we stand today versus our competitor? What are they doing that's working? What are we doing that's working? Very motivating for teams, having that sense of edge uh, and and things to work towards. Um, so with What3Words, because it's such a blank slate, and you're really sort of competing with just getting people to ho- sort of hobble by with an address that may not have been working for them. Um, And try something new, but it's not a competitor as such. So it can be difficult to know: are we doing well? Are we doing badly? Is it somewhere in between? How does that vary between country? Um, That is a total empty slate, and it's something that I think we we also say to our team when they join here is like be prepared for the mental battle of not having that benchmarking that you might be used to elsewhere, and then. You know, when we internally look back and go, what was a good idea and what was a bad idea? There'll be so many opinions around the table because it's very hard to objectively prove that this was a good or a bad idea, something that we did. So really interesting, unique experience as a team being in that situation uh, with with a product which is out there on its own.
0: I can imagine. Let's talk about clients because you are partnering with lots of different companies now. Tell me about some of the clients you have now and what type of fields you might want to go in that you're not in yet.
1: So one of the verticals that we've really cracked has been car navigation systems. So the first one was Mercedes-Benz, obviously a, a, an amazing first client mm-hmm. given their sort of positioning in the market as it was luxury end but still mass market car. Um and we were then able to secure a whole bunch of others, Subaru, Mitsubishi, even the supercars Lotus, Lamborghini, um and and now Jaguar Land Rover so many more coming out and the good thing about when you're growing a standard is that then once a few in a sector have adopted it um many more want it and ideally you can get to 100% like there's not many things where you really think that 100% of the market is a possible thing to to get but with us we do it's kind of like analogy I use is when speed camera data first became a thing that you could get into cars, all of the cars suddenly had speed camera data in. And we think it's the same with What3Words in that it just should be a feature that you would expect your car to have. And again, with without a competitor, you, you, can, you can go after 100% of the market and we're, we're well on the way to getting that with car navigation. Another sector would be e-commerce and logistics. So there's now this field that um, people selling anything online can add to their checkout page. Very simple, just after the address or postcode where it says what three words, and it'll be optional and people can add it in there. That then gets passed through to the logistics company who might be making the delivery and they will then show up at the actual three-metre square for your front door, which if you live somewhere like me is an absolute godsend because we're in a village in Hertfordshire. Um, It it may not help everybody. If you live on a a really straightforward street where number four is between number two and the six, it may not make a huge difference, but for so many people it does. And that world is now the similar thing is happening. We first of all got put in the Hermes app. Hermes now called Every. And then we got DPD and then DHL. And again, similar thing is happening is it because it's becoming this sort of quasi standard across that world, people are now thinking, well, that we we should support What3Words. This is this is great if we get sent it because it means our drivers are going to show up to the right place, less time wasted, less miles driven, less CO two, and it's a win-win for everybody. And it's just one field to add. So again, we we're becoming dominant in that market, starting here in the UK, but also now doing it in in a few countries in parallel.
0: It's incredible. And also Obviously, it was a genius idea. It is a genius idea. And like you said, being able to have 100% of the market is pretty damn good. What Are you seeing anyone come out? I, I assume possibly not. But is there anyone trying to do something similar because they can see how great an idea it is?
1: So I think the only others we're aware of are some of the people who've made long alphanumeric codes. And actually, what we didn't realize that there was one invented by TomTom Tom before we started. It was called Map Code. And it's nine alphanumeric characters. So, you know, A76X dot four NBQ three two L, something along those lines. And the idea is very much the same as ours that you're trying to distill that latitude and longitude into something simpler. But I think it, it was just too complex to catch on. And I think there's too much to understand as well in, ter- in terms of how the system works. I think it's fine if you're a map enthusiast or a professional geographer and you have to deal with these kind of systems on a daily basis, but for your average person on the street, it is too hard, too complicated, too much to remember. And so there have been others that have come and gone probably about 20 other code systems out there if you look, but they all have to do the same thing. If you're going to do a global system, it cannot be shorter than nine or 10 alphanumeric characters to have a code for every few meters. And I think all of them have failed for that same reason that it's too complicated. One of the things that we did early on Mohan and I, we went and saw there's a professor of psychology up in York University called Alan Baddeley, who who actually had been on the committee that designed the first postcode for the UK. And we we asked him about his research he'd done in the 60s and about the human brain's ability to feel comfortable with three words versus how many numbers and how many letters. And he just thought, "What well, three words is a brilliant idea based on purely the way that the human brain works. And it was just an extra step of validation for us that perhaps the reason that these codes had failed, even though they were promoted by these vast companies like TomTom, who at the time was the market leader, mid-2000s, is that it was just hard for the human brain to remember a long sequence. So we were fortunate that in what we'd created was so nice and user-friendly. We obviously keep our eyes open for other competitors, but I think every time we see a code and a long code come along, we know that it's going to be tough for people to use that versus Mm -hmm. using three words in their native language.
0: So there's nothing really to worry about. In terms of worrying and being able to grow the company, obviously growing the company even now, nine years on, you've raised, I think, 150 million. What has been some challenging times? I'm assuming COVID was a huge one.
1: COVID was a challenging time, as it was for so many businesses. For one, if you're a navigation tool, and right when COVID first hit and people were in lockdown, of course us like any any other apple service to do with navigation the numbers all took a huge dive as everyone sat at home and no one was going to do any three meter squares so that was tricky um but uh, on the flip side that didn't last for that long um and also we saw things like the delivery business really surged so mm-hmm. many companies uh, went into online delivery and so from a b2b perspective um, it was very good. And we do almost divide the business in two like that. We have one team that looks after consumer adoption and the other team that is after business adoption. Um, and I think the other the other challenges are possibly some that you know a lot of startups face when you do that big growth spurt from 20 people to 100 people, that can be a bit of a chaotic time. And, and what I'd say really makes that difficult is if you add the dimension of international travel into that. So for many businesses, most of their team is based in the country that the business starts in a, a lot of the time, or, or maybe you have one team in one country and one in another. But for us, we were so dispersed early on because we knew the system had to be global. and even if you get consumer adoption in the UK, maybe the company you're going after, and that could be you know a Mercedes-Benz in Germany or Mitsubishi in Japan all of the companies we were targeting were in places around the world. And it's not like France, you know, places a long way away. And having your team doing so much travel leads to communications issues, time zone issues, all sorts of things, which if you add that in to trying to grow a team very fast from 20 to 100 people, makes life tricky. And I think now the company knows exactly how we handle that and all the processes are in place. But for the time that the team was getting bigger at such a fast rate, it was a tricky time to get all of that right.
0: Absolutely. And I know lots of startups that have gone through that phase and and some have really suffered as a result in terms of culture and everything else. And then throwing COVID as well, it, it doesn't really help. You've been doing this close to 10 years now. What has surprised you most throughout that time?
1: I think... It's a really interesting question about surprise. I think what has surprised me is is still how the elegance of the concept gives us so much about how we grow what through words. And as much as in the UK now, it's a very, very well-known brand. But of course, as you go into other countries and other startups will have the same thing. If you're used to being well-known somewhere, you're not well-known somewhere else. You've got to do it all over again in the new country. And the concept itself has been has been brilliant to us in that it just gets us indoors, it gets us interest, it will get us meetings, exposure, all of those things, all of those things we like. Um, I guess a corresponding surprise would be things like how how unique this company is. I think as we as we grew, I expected to find around the world more companies building standards that were proprietary and owned in a company format rather than other kind of open standards. I thought there'd be more like us, more comparables, more things to compare us to, Um, but actually there aren't. Just surprised at how unique we are. And that's even with such a large team doing so many things that we just never bump into people in a similar bucket. And even now, having to still kind of make up the rule book as to how you would grow a standard like this ourselves with so, so few resources to draw on. And that's probably the biggest one. It's the biggest one that we talk to new joiners about when they come and work here is about how often little transferable experience and skills will be from other businesses. And I think where you can get confused into thinking, I don't know, let's say someone comes from the car sector or the mapping sector, things where you can think, well, you know, What three words is kind of about maps, so there'll be a lot of interlinked things there, but actually not really. Our grid is overlaid on a map and yes, the implementation is related, but in how you grow the business and how you grow the product, it's totally unrelated. And again, we're back out there on our own. So I think that has just been a surprise to us still. And then to everyone who joins the team, I think they're always expecting more parallels, but there aren't any. But we also love what makes us unique.
0: It's so fascinating because I hadn't even thought of that side of things. In terms of, again, you've been going for nearly nine years, what has been the toughest lesson that you've learned as an entrepreneur?
1: I think the toughest lesson I've learned as an entrepreneur is trying to take on the world in one fell swoop is trickier than you think. And because I guess when I thought about it, you know, what, what was brilliant about my music business is that you could just do it it took not that long to get going and build a good business which just kind of paid for itself in a very nice and self-sustaining way. And I thought with this great idea which is so captivating, it'll be so quick to do that and build it globally. And I think that the tough lesson is that as soon as you add in different countries, um, consumer adoption and how tricky that can be and how expensive it can be and how skilled you have to be at that. And then dicing that by so many countries and languages and all these other things is harder than you think. And that's a tough lesson to learn. But also, I think it's kind of good to get into these things with a little bit of naive optimism and glass half full mentality, because otherwise you may not even start. So whilst it's been the toughest lesson, most of it was kind of understood and learned by the end of, I don't know, year three or four. And you kind of go, right, I get the scale of the challenge now. But then you're in, both feet firmly in. Um, so I, I think it's, yeah, built, building something globally. and And we have so much survivorship bias with the business we know in the public eye who've done that. But it's tough and you've got to have an amazing product market fit to do that if you're going to build a global product that's recognizable in all corners of the world in any kind of short time period
0: sure and in t- terms of product market fit was there ever a point because obviously the first few years there was no income was there any point where you felt like this might not work as in you were thinking about giving up or did you never think about that
1: i honestly i i didn't and i just I think I just knew that because I would use this product every day, and I know this is a sort of dangerous way for anybody to think because you can end up with a market of one, which is you. Um, but I just knew that there were so many people in the world who who would benefit if what three words is a standard. And this is always what we got told, even by the people who, didn't, who wouldn't use it or wouldn't take to it, even if they liked it, they said, look, call me back when everyone else uses it and then I'll use it because I like it. And I always just thought that is possible. If all you've got to do is get network effect, that feels like a surmountable obstacle to overcome. I think there are other things which are harder. There was a great quote from a Rory Sutherland podcast with Stephen Bartlett, I think just even this week or something, where he said something like, Psychological moonshots are easier than engineering moonshots. As in, it is, you know, it's hard to do anything on Mars, let's say, or get something to Mars with all the engineering involved. If if all you've got to do is get a lot of people thinking something's a good idea and that will get the other person to think it's a good idea and use it, that can't be that hard. So that was always just kind of in my mind, thinking we'll find a way to get the network effect. We'll find a way to persuade a group of people at a time uh, to all use what through words. If they all like it and all they need is for each other to use it, y- you can fill the gaps in.
0: You know, talking about naivety and optimism, they're probably the two most important traits I think of entrepreneurs and when you also said about the market of one as in you you knew that you use it I, I've always thought actually if you can find one person even if it's you then you know there's more like you you're not that unique that there's no one else that's going to want the same thing so it's so interesting it's like Shazam remember when they first started obviously it was like 20 years ago they weren't sure how it's going to work because it was quite cumbersome it was pre smartphone mm. and you had to like dial a number and then they text you back a, a thing And it's just amazing to see that someone comes up with an idea and also it's obviously very useful to you. And then you start to see the millions. I think your app's been downloaded over 30 million times. You know, that's just quite an amazing experience, isn't it? So I guess this leads on to my next question. What are you most proud of? Was there a moment during the last 10 years where you allowed yourself a moment and patted yourself on the back and said, oh, you know, we've done part of what we set out to do?
1: Um, I think there's probably two moments that felt like that the first one was winning that can lions grand prix for innovation where knowing it was the biggest ideas festival in the world and knowing that you'd won the ultimate prize for innovation you kind of do just sit there and take the moment and go wow that's a pretty cool achievement that this thing that i sort of scribbled on a piece of paper with my friends in a room in the middle of winter um where we just thought that's an interesting idea the fact that we bothered to run with it and then you win the biggest ideas festival in the world. That was pretty cool and still is to this day that I think that sometimes as underwhelming as the environment can be when you come up with the idea, maybe you did have a really good idea. So that was one. I think the other one was probably using What Three Words by speaking into a Mercedes for the first time. And partly as a bit of a kind of um, just uh, what I've learned about integrations with tech and third parties and as more third parties you introduce into the chain if you like before you get this flow working you're you're so impressed with when everything works perfectly and actually to speak it to your car now i've learned what actually happens behind the scenes and where your sound wave gets sent off to in a server in another country which then gets passed to a server in another country by a different supplier and all this happens obviously in a fraction of a second and then displays the three words back on the car navigation system that you're looking at Um, and knowing what our tech team had to do to make all of that work, that's a great moment to go, cool, I said three words to this car, it knew exactly what I meant, where I want to go, and now I'm going to navigate to this three-meter square. And car navigation having been this famously cumbersome experience and this all happening in the world's most kind of prestigious car brand, I just thought, yes, this is going to work, and I love this.
0: Absolutely, and when you said Mercedes was one of your clients, I was thinking... Well, that's a pretty damn good client to get early on. You really went after these big companies. And of course, like you said, then it's a domino effect. The others will follow. A couple more questions. I think obviously storytelling is very important to what three words. And I was going through a whole load of your YouTube videos, which are incredible. Like there was this seven-year-old girl, Isla, who was, you know, alongside her mother, who's, I guess, having an asthma attack in a car, I guess, in on a motorway or wherever. And the mother calls the ambulance service and you can hear the recording and then obviously, she gets the mother gets sent the app and is able to give her exact location. I mean, things like that are incredible. And you must hear loads of stories like that. Is there any standout stories for you where you thought, wow, that is incredible?
1: So it is fantastic that What Through Words is used by emergency services. And I've sort of mean humbling in the truest sense of it, where it just is a great use case in a world where People think that their phone can automatically transmit to the location to the emergency services. In some places that can happen to some extent, but it is somewhat of a lottery as to what cell towers are around you as to whether that works or not. And so the fact that what we've created allows people to do that in an emergency situation. And as you can imagine, um, we, we do hear about the stories that people write in on social media they put it on their app reviews and we've gathered them over time and i think the the thing which which leaves you with the feeling is just the quantity of them that we see coming through and obviously every live saved and when you get the ambulance services you know really saying that we think this saved a life because time was at stake and it was in the middle of nowhere and we would just wouldn't have known what to do without this it's a huge boost and an amazing feeling to everybody who works on everything to do with what three words that that is one of the applications that we're being used for and is happening every day um and we've got the tech out there to all of these services it's something that we offer for free for anybody in, who works in emergency services um so that there will never be a price barrier for them to access it and just seeing that more and more countries come on board with that emergency services use case it's a shared problem internationally they're all set up differently but have shared issues around location so Yes, very, very powerful to all of us here. And and every day that we hear more about those stories, it's another great reason to keep doing what we're doing.
0: It's so heartening because I was actually reading a, a recent Times article where you were interviewed and I looked at the comments and usually with kind of founder stories, there'll be some mildly amusing comments. And there was one actually on the Times article which was saying that you should have got your shoes off the couch because I think in one of the photographs you were posing, you had to, and then someone responded saying, well, I think it's his couch. But anyway, but the kind of overwhelming comments were all about people's stories. And one was saying like, basically using what three words helped them save a a surface stuck in the Hebrides. And another was talking about a Walker, they discovered on a mountainside. I mean, I don't know what all these times readers are doing. They seem to have very active holidays, but anyway, the point was they were all saying how fantastic it was. And I just thought, God, that must be so heartening because as a founder, there's so many highs and so many lows of a business, but to hear these stories must be so, I don't know, just keeps you going. Um, final question, which I ask everyone, it's going back into time again. If you could go back in time, what is one piece of advice you'd offer, a younger Chris?
1: I think a younger Chris, I would definitely be be saying to just find a way to do something like this, but a bit earlier in life. and but also, yes, just to I, I think i'd I'd I loved music and wanted to work in music because it was just kind of what I'd spent my life growing up in. But I think just realizing that especially if you're into an art form or into something in life, it doesn't mean that the fit will be ideal for what you should make a business out of. And so, yeah, I dearly love music and and all parts of it, but actually the best fit for me was finding what three words, the concept and realizing that actually I'm much more at home in terms of evangelizing to the world, a new way that you should do something. And that's not something you can really get good at or practice as a child very easily i'm sure there there are exceptions to that but you don't just have to go into a business that you qualified for and i know that's changing all the time through education people now feel far more empowered to go and do something else but i think just just knowing that i didn't have to follow what everyone else told me i was good at and finding this which is actually the sweet spot that works for me personally would have been great but you know who, who knows and i think probably getting lost for 10 years in music. If I hadn't have done that, would I have come up with what threw us the idea? Maybe not. So so I don't know. But that's that's probably what comes to mind.
0: People always say that things happen for a reason. And I'm sure when you cut your hand, yeah. you know, it was a, a dark time. But look what you've achieved now and what you're going to achieve. I mean, literally, could you have impacted the world like this with your music? And, and not this is not, you know, lessening the impact that music has. But to think what you're doing now, I, I don't think... I I agree.
1: I think both the world of the bassoon and I have benefited from probably that hand injury. Whilst it wouldn't have been evident on the day, uh, I think everything has definitely worked out pretty well looking back.
0: Absolutely. Chris, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Pleasure. Thanks so much, Danielle, for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Chris Sheldrick of What Three Words. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favour and like and review it. It always means so much to me and my guests and it also helps others to find it too. Finally, I wanted to leave you with a poignant quote from Chris today where he talks about the enormity of the task he was taking on when founding What3Words and why he decided to go for it anyway. He says, And as much as that might sound like a hugely audacious goal to just generate something for the world, that was what we intended. And I think like everyone who starts a startup, you think it might be easier But we were just very set on this is achievable, because for whatever reason, we got this far in time, and nobody had decided to make a global system like this. And I just thought, well, if you're that person on that day with that idea, great, and let's run with it.